0: Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists, with me Chris Smith and with Hannah Critchlow.
1: Hello, and this week, why biofuels cost the Earth, how a neutron star proved good old Einstein right, and what our voices tell
0: you about our body shape. Plus, what is a legal high, and where do these new drugs come from, how are they detected? And how do scientists discover what they do to users' brains?
1: If you'd like to get in touch with us here at the Naked Scientists, then you can email studio at thenakedscientists.com. you can tweet at Naked Scientists, or you can find us on Facebook.
2: The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. <laughs>
0: And joining Hannah and me for a look at what's making science headlines this week, apart from the fact that it is the 60th anniversary of the discovery of DNA, are Neil Withers, he's from Chemistry World magazine, science journalist Mark Peplow, and Laurie Winkless from the National Physical Laboratory. Hello to all of you. Neil, first up, biofuels. A new report is suggesting that the arguments are not all that compelling.
3: That's right. There's a report out from Chatham House which suggests that biofuels, which are supposed to be low-carbon green alternative to the fuels that we dig out of the ground aren't as good as we thought they are. Why not? Unfortunately, there's a number of reasons why not. For a start, they destabilise the food chain because to grow them you have to use um, fields that you would normally use to make crops and that makes food prices go up and causes food riots in in poorer places. And second of all, in order to still maintain the same amount of crops that we use to make food... You end up using fields from rainforests or from other areas of high carbon, and you release all that carbon into the atmosphere, destroy biodiversity, and that completely wipes out the gains you get from using fuel grown.
0: The present rules across the EU, some other countries as well, the US is one of them, I know South America is one of them, they dictate that 5% of what we're burning at the moment in the form of transport fuels has to be. Biofuel. That's supposed to be 10% by 2020, isn't it? So there's this very lofty goal of putting a lot of biofuel into what we're burning. Where's it going to come from then, and what's the cost?
3: It might even be as high as 15% by 2020, so it really is a problem. So this is going to come from a number of places. It's not just food crops that are converted into biofuels there's also using waste cooking oil or tallow which is just animal fat you can convert that into biodiesel and that's a lot better but there are still concerns because if you're using those waste oils or or animal fat then the places that those end up being used now they're going to have to get their oil from somewhere else so they go to use fossil fuel oils and it all it all comes from fossil fuels in the end.
1: When biofuels were first discussed many years ago, didn't politicians and scientists foresee this happening?
3: I think they did, but I think one of the reasons why these targets have come into place is partly out of selfishness for the US and for Europe because it means that they get to subsidise poorer regions of Europe and the US and that means that they can sort of divert funds to people who are going to vote for them.
2: Mark? Are there issues of degree here? Are there some biofuels that are better than others? Um, Brazil's uh, bioethanol that it makes from sugarcane, for example, is often lauded as, a, as quite a success.
3: Yeah, bioethanol in Brazil is certainly probably the best example because Brazil's a, a hot country on the tropics. They get a lot of sunshine. They can produce high-energy crops, as, as you say. But unfortunately, the... Um, the subsidies that American farmers get to produce bioethanol from corn means that the market's fallen out for bioethanol. So they're lo- losing out. And there, there is a big difference between things like bioethanol from wheat is incredibly bad. I think that's just really, really in- inefficient. But using waste cooking oil is probably the best one because the oil's already there and it's been
0: used. Neil, thank you very much. And we'll also hear more about biofuels in a minute because we'll hear from Dr John Love from the University of Exeter who's actually got a very clever strategy involving bacteria.
1: But next, Laurie, um, I believe that you've been looking at a paper where researchers have solved the puzzle of why LEDs droop?
4: It does sound a little odd, but just bear with me. (laughs) There's nothing mechanical about this droop. This efficiency droop that LED manufacturers and lighting manufacturers speak about is actually when you get a drop in the efficiency of an LED when you increase the current that you apply to it. And the major problem with this is that if we want LEDs to be very bright, we want to apply a large current to them. So we want to increase the current and then increase the light output from the LED. But with a particular type of LED, you actually don't get that. You get a kind of deviation from this perfect straight line. You get this droop in efficiency. And a group led by Claude Weisbuck, who is from the University of California in Santa Barbara, that is just just actually being published in the next week or so, uh, seems to have actually discovered the culprit of this efficiency droop. And they've actually made some real measurements, very definitive measurements, to prove that their theory is actually correct.
0: How have they done it? What have they done?
4: Well, basically, um, these... LEDs that they use are called INGAN, so indium gallium nitride LEDs. Uh, And basically what they've done is they modelled, about two years ago, a group modelled this LED and tried to understand why they were getting this drop in efficiency. And they found that if you had this um, system, this effect called Auger recombination inside the material, that would explain this droop. It would explain the drop in output of light of the LED. And this Auger recombination uh, is basically, it's kind of fundamental to the operation of an LED. So, So inside one of these LEDs, you actually have lots of charge carriers, so electrons and holes, that are being created and recombining all the time. So that's how they work. When an electron and a hole combine together, the energy that they release is released in the form of light. So that's how an LED works. But sometimes you can get these three particle interactions. This is this Auger Recombination, where you do get an electron hole being produced, but the energy that, that, that actually releases just heats up another electron, so another unstable electron, so this third particle. So the energy being released is not as light, but is lost as heat. So to actually try and measure this is a huge challenge, but this group have managed to do it. They've looked at the electron distribution within these INGAN devices, within these LEDs, and they've found that they're absolutely right. Uh, The theory that Auger recombination would explain this deficiency is completely correct.
1: When I think about an LED light, I, I think of it as being incredibly bright already and also not giving off a huge amount of heat compared to a traditional light bulb, an
4: incandescent bulb,
1: How does that fit with this data that they've found?
4: Well, basically, they are very, very efficient. You're right, absolutely. They're really durable and they last, they have incredibly long lifetimes, much, much longer than an incandescent or a fluorescent bulb. And they don't have a filament either, so that's why they don't heat up. They're just based on charge car- charges moving around inside a material. Um, so in that way, they seem like a really obvious choice. But the problem is, if we want to illuminate a large area, we need to apply a very high current. And with, with LEDs, when we apply this large current, we just don't get the light output that we want to get. So we actually don't get it to, to illuminate a large area. We just get a very small, bright source of light, which isn't very good if we want to replace incandescent or fluorescent bulbs
0: so Laurie now you know or now this team know why you get the droop and what's underlying it does that mean we can come up with a strategy to get round it or is there a wall there it's impossible to surmount unless we completely change materials
4: This effect, this recombination effect, it can't be eliminated because part of it actually defines how the LED actually works. But you can minimize this Auger recombination by being a bit clever with the materials engineering. So this group actually believe you can use the same materials, this indium gallium nitride that already gives you nice blue efficient LEDs. But by changing the actual structure of the material on the nanoscale, you can actually design it so that the recombination is uh, at least minimised. Uh, So it's definitely going to change how we design our LEDs from now on.
0: Having installed some, I have to say, they're absolutely fabulous, and uh, I'm behind them all the way, but even brighter ones would be better.
4: Thanks, Laurie.
1: And Mark, I believe you've been looking at a new test of the general theory of relativity.
2: Yeah, that's right. Um, Astronomers have found a pair of stars, very unusual stars, uh, that have given Einstein one of the toughest tests to date of his theory of gravity. And he's passed with flying colours.
1: Good old Einstein. So how did they test this?
2: These stars are very unusual. One of them is a pulsar. That's a neutron star that spins around 25 times each second. And as it goes, it sends out this beam of radio waves, just like a lighthouse. And it sweeps past Earth 25 times a second. And radio telescopes can pick that up and measure it. The other star uh, that it orbits around is a white dwarf star, um, which is the glowing remains um, uh, of a star that's lost its atmosphere. Now, um, the, uh, the neutron star is one of the heaviest that's ever been found. This pulsar, uh, it's twice as heavy as the sun. It's just 20 kilometres across. So the gravity at its surface is more than 300 billion times stronger than that on Earth. And if you got the stuff out of its middle, if you took a sugar cube worth of stuff out of its middle, uh, it'd weigh more than a billion billion tonnes. So this is quite an intense, unusual environment. Uh, There's a lot of mass moving around very quickly. They orbit each other just uh, every two and a half hours. And as they go, Einstein's theory predicts that they should send out gravitational waves. These are ripples in the fabric of space-time. And as they do that, they're losing energy all the time. And that means they spiral closer and closer and closer together And that means that their period of rotation will speed up very slightly. And because uh, this pulsar is sending out this beam of radio waves, just like a telescope, they can actually watch that speeding up of the orbital period. Einstein predicted it should be eight millionths of a second per year, and that's exactly what they saw. So
0: they don't detect the gravity waves, though. That's the critical thing. They're they're actually inferring the gravity waves must be coming out because the planets are going in.
2: Absolutely. So it's an indirect test of the existence of these gravitational waves and of Einstein's general theory of relativity. There is other indirect, direct evidence of gravitational waves. And, of course, there are experiments going on, LIGO is one of them, to actually directly detect gravitational waves. LIGO works, for example, by by shining two sets of laser beams held at right angles along tracks a few kilometres long. And the gravity waves, because they're rippling space, actually just slightly change where those laser beams go. They haven't found anything yet, But the cool thing about these stars that have been found is that because they can sort of model exactly what sort of gravity wave should be coming out, it gives people working on experiments like LIGO a better idea of where they should be looking for the signals, direct signals of gravity waves.
0: Because, of course, we also want to use similar things as LIGO and LISA, the interferometer in space, to look for gravity waves to infer the potential existence of parallel universes, because we think that if there is a parallel universe out there, or many universes, the gravity ought to be able to propagate between them, and we ought to be able to see that.
2: That would be one of the things. At LISA, unfortunately, is is uh, a, is it's kind of a similar setup as LIGO. It's just that it's planned to go up in space, um, and it would have a, a trio of of satellites, um, uh, each about two million kilometres apart. So it's like LIGO, but a lot bigger and thus a lot more sensitive. Sadly, LISA um, at the moment is. A, a dim and distant prospect, there's a, a sort of technology mission being launched next year called LISA Pathfinder that's going to test some of the, the technology that you would need to do that. But the funding for LISA itself, the real thing, is just not on the table at NASA at all. Um, the European Space Agency are trying to pick up the pieces with that, but that's gonna, it's 20 years away.
0: Good to know that Einstein was right. Thank you very much, Mark Peplow. (laughs) Hannah, you've been looking at uh, voices, very important on the radio, but actually they belie a lot more than we might think about what people look like.
1: Yeah, so a uh, scientists this week have published a paper on why certain people's voices might sound sexy. So uh, Marilyn Monroe, for example, was known as having quite a breathy, quite attractive voice and um, was perceived as... Of
0: cigarettes, wasn't it?
1: <laughs> well, it was also the happy birthday Mr President was particularly breathy, wasn't it? And then uh, there's also... Barry White, who's got his dupe voice that makes many women swoon whilst he croons. And um, scientists have been trying to find out exactly why that might be, that certain voices are perceived as being attractive and what it might correlate with in
0: terms of your physical attributes. So, but why should they be? Why should voice have anything to do with the way we look?
1: Well, if you think about the development of your vocal cords and your vocal tract, then that is developed quite early on and is also regulated by the hormones, the sex hormones, testosterone and oestrogen. So the more testosterone that you have during the development, the longer the vocal tract will be and that will give rise to a more bassy voice. Um, whereas so you're it... saying
0: like in the same way that people look at the length of fingers relative to each other and say this can be used as a hallmark of how much testosterone a baby is exposed to in the in the uterus you're saying development of the vocal tract is also linked to hormones and that because other bits of the body are going to develop in response to hormones this will change physical attributes
1: That's yeah so that's the thought yeah and Because evolutionary, the larger you may be, the more testosterone that might be there, the more competitive you are with the testosterone as a man, then you will have more of a dupe voice. And so you might be a a better mate choice for
0: females. Well, if you have a preference for very androgenised men, maybe, Hannah, I don't know. But... um, What's the evidence? Does this actually apply? I mean, it's a good theory. Is there any evidence to support it?
1: So what the scientists at University College London did was they took 16 female volunteers, 16 male volunteers that were in their mid-20s, and they uh, made them listen to about 100 different soundbite samples of uh, someone saying the same thing over and over and over again, which was... I owe you a yo-yo. And the scientists altered the pitch and also the modular dynamics, um, so how the, the vowels were actually dynamically s- stated. And they also altered the breathiness of the statement. And then the the participants were asked to volunteer how attractive they thought that voice sounded. And it turns out that females rated males that had the, the bassier voice but also... the the more monosyllabic vowel sounds, but also mixed in with a bit of breathiness. So that was interesting because the breathiness is usually associated with more female traits because the larynx has got this little kind of gap in it which causes a
0: female breathy voice. So to summarise, if they did have a very deep voice they tended to to be rated as more attractive? Yeah, so
1: deeper voice, more attractive, and possibly there would be a better mate choice. they would be more territorial, more competitive because of this high testosterone that would then increase the, the vocal tract length and also the
0: vocal larynx as well. I owe you a yo-yo, and I'll try the thing I owe you a yo-yo. Now, we're going to try something a little bit new this week, which is a quick-fire rundown of the major science facts that you need to know behind a major news story. And this week, Professor Kathy Ison from Public Health England announced that the sexually transmitted infection gonorrhea could become resistant to all known antibiotics by 2015. So here's the quick-fire science on the disease from our Naked Scientist team members, Eleanor Tay and Pete Skidmore.
5: Gonorrhea is a sexually transmitted bacterial infection most often seen in young adults under the age of 25.
6: With 62 million new cases each year worldwide, it's the second most common bacterial STI after chlamydia.
5: Gonorrhea is on the rise in the UK, with records showing a 25% increase in cases in 2011.
6: It's transmitted between people during unprotected sex, but may also be passed from an infected mother to her baby during birth.
5: The bacteria can infect all parts of the female and male reproductive system, as well as the eyes and throat. The
6: infection is often symptomless, but may cause yellow discharge and a burning sensation when urinating.
5: If left untreated, more serious complications can occur, including the destruction of the fallopian tubes and infertility in women.
6: Gonorrhea is normally treated with a course of antibiotics, but some strains are developing resistance to these drugs.
5: Almost a quarter of strains are now resistant to penicillin, so alternative antibiotics are having to be used. In time, these may also become ineffective.
6: With no new antibiotics in the pipeline, Awareness of safe sex practices and regular checkups is still the best form of protection.
0: So, watch out. Thank you, Eleanor Tay and Pete Skidmore. Thank you also to our news panel this week Neil Withers, Laurie Winkless, and Mark Peplow. You can find out more information, including the references to the papers we've been discussing, on our website at slash news.
1: This is The Naked Scientist with me, Hannah Critchlow, and with Chris Smith. Now, earlier Neil discussed whether biofuels are really the answer to reducing our reliance on fossil fuels. But this week, a paper in PNAS revealed that E. coli bacteria can be used to produce biodiesel that is identical to the fossil fuel diesel
0: that we currently use. This work's been pioneered by Dr. John Love. He's from Exeter University. John, why were you trying to do this? What was the motivation?
7: Oh the original motivation was that uh, the current biofuels that we use the first generation ethanol and plant oil derived biodiesel are actually not that good not just because uh, of the problems that you uh, were mentioning earlier but also because basically in a car engine they they aren't uh, they're not great they don't burn very well they have uh, problems they clog up the engine there are issues with quality control as well and uh, and so Really, what we wanted to do was to see if we couldn't generate biologically a fuel that was exactly what we needed for the retail fuel market. And rather than actually sort of having um, substitutes or additives, what we can do is have fuel replacements that wouldn't uh, affect the efficiency of modern engines.
0: I was of the opinion that mm-hmm. scientists are already modifying microorganisms to produce diesel and diesel-like substitutes. Yeah. Algae, for example. Mm-hmm. So, what can you add by doing it in E. coli instead?
7: Well, so basically, uh, algae are, are, are very, very useful. Actually, and I also do work a little bit on algae, and, and I'm a big fan of algae. Uh, the problem is, is that uh, the amount of land required to actually grow algae right now is substantial and also the amount of capital expenditure into developing algal farms is very, very large right now. Even though you've got the concept of the integrated biorefineries whereby you could use, say, um, water treatment plants to feed algae and maybe um, nuclear power hot water to actually heat them up, there are some issues regarding algae which you just can't get around, and that is the amount of sun hitting the pond and the depths of ponds, self shading, and all these sort of issues.
0: And of course, E. coli will grow in the dark, won't they? Exactly. So you can get It'll around that dark.
7: problem. It will grow in a, in a great big tower. So essentially, your land footprint is quite quite low. And and also, E. coli, the, the technologies of E. coli fermentation, if you like, are there in the pharmaceutical industry. And the technologies of, um, say, the brewing industry, which relies on yeast, can be fitted into an E. coli-style system.
0: So first off, what does it take to make E. coli make diesel? Because just in case anyone isn't aware of this, E. coli don't make diesel normally, do they? No,
7: no, no they don't, not at all. In fact, um, it's, uh, it's quite intriguing because a lot of uh, microorganisms do make a lot of alkane-like compounds. A lot of animals actually make alkane-like compounds. For instance, birds... Uh, use an alkane-like wax to waterproof their feathers. Plants use it on their cuticles uh, to stop water evaporating from the leaves. Insects use it in their cuticles for the same reason. Uh, Cyanobacteria use it as well for a reason that we don't really understand just yet. But the, the thing is that E. coli does not do it. E. coli, though, is the workhorse of the laboratory. And so what we thought we'd do is, if we cannot find the organism's that can make the alkanes in sufficient amounts, can't we engineer them to make the alkanes that we need and that we want? So uh, what we did is we trawled the literature, trawled the GenBank and various things like that, came up with uh, a few solutions that were possible, and then built uh, artificial synthetic metabolic pathways in order to generate the biofuels. And the conversion basically goes from free fatty acids to an aldehyde to the alkane and we trim and we customise the chain length, the carbon chain length, and the carbon chain configuration at the free fatty acid stage.
0: So, in other words, what you feed the bugs Mm -hmm. determines what they churn out?
7: Well, not really, no, because actually uh, what we feed the bugs right now is glucose, and really glucose is the source of most of the energy in in the E. coli cell, and it will eventually be converted to a free fatty acid, If we were able to uh, feed it another substrate, then it would just use it as an energy source and it would also take that to a free fatty acid. Providing there's some carbon there, we can actually construct these fatty acid carbon chains. So Um, you've
0: taken chunks or modules mm -hmm. of, I suppose, bits of metabolic pathways from a range of different microorganisms, reassembled them all in E. coli, so it's got this ability to to do this synthesis. It then makes these chemicals that to all intents and purposes are very similar in composition to diesel Mm
7: -hmm.
0: how much can i get from one bacterium or or if if i grow a culture of them can you get practical amounts out
7: well right now no you can't and uh, so what we've done essentially is a proof of principle what we need to do next is to actually work out the bottlenecks in the metabolic pathways to try and iron out any competing reactions to make the process much more efficient and potentially also boost the amount of fatty acid that is produced by E. coli. And there's a wide literature in actually doing that, so that might be uh, relatively uh, feasible. Um, What we'd also like to do is alter the inputs, if you like, into the system, not just the outputs, so that we can uh, get the E. coli to feed off a variety of um, substrates, and not just, uh, right now, glucose, but perhaps... Sugars derived from lignocellulose, so the degradation of wood, or perhaps even waste products, we wouldn't accept actually as useful right now.
0: All right, well we must leave it there, but it looks like there's a little bit of optimisation to do, but every reason to be optimistic. John, thank you very much. Thank you That's John Love. He is from the University of Exeter, and that work was published this week in the journal PNAS. This is The Naked Scientist with Hannah Critchlow, and also with me, Chris Smith. And if you'd like to get in touch with any questions or comments, you can email us. It's uh, studio at com. You can also tweet at Naked Scientist, or you can look us up on our Facebook page.
1: Now, last year in the UK, 73 completely new legal high drug compounds were found in clubs and bought over the internet by the police. But how do scientists keep up with this constant flow of new and untested chemicals that are being released and flooding the market? Well, in a moment, we'll be talking to Colin Davidson from St George's University of London about how he analyses the effects
0: of these legal high drugs on the brain. But first, analytical toxicologist John Ramsey explained to me how his company, Tic Tac Communications, which produce a commercial drug database used by UK healthcare and law and order professionals, track the appearance of new drugs and what constitutes a legal
8: high. A legal high is a compound not controlled by the Misuse of Drugs Act. Drugs that mimic existing drugs of misuse but have been modified sufficiently to just tweak them to bring them outside the Misuse of of Drugs Act but are similar enough to maintain the pharmacology. Of course, at the time they're synthesised and sold, nobody really knows whether they do that or not. But the assumption is that the molecular adjustments are relatively minor. Therefore, they will retain the pharmacology. Then they get marketed and evaluated by the users who report back whether they work or not. And then they're either successful if they work as drugs or they're not successful, I guess, if they don't. So how do you stay on top of this? It's a completely moving goalpost. We we discover a new compound, we find out about it, we tell the legislators they make it illegal and then the bad guys look for a new compound. So we go round and round this circle with a constant number of new compounds being made and detected and then controlled. So do you have to dip into the marketplace, for want of a better word,
0: to see what's doing the rounds then, to keep... Updated.
8: Yes, we have lots of different strategies. I mean, we can only work within the law, obviously, that, that's, that's one issue. So um, we use the contents of Club Amnesty bins to see what's being used in the great uh, outdoors, as it were. A Club Amnesty bin? Clubs are known to have a drug problem, so they need to do the best they can to minimise drug use on their premises. So they will agree with the local police and the local licensing authority on a strategy to keep drugs out. And what it normally says is they reserve the right to search people as a condition of entry to, to the club. And if they find anything during the course of that search, as long as it's deemed to be small enough for to be for personal use, as long as it's surrendered, then people are allowed to go in the club and the club operates normally. And they dump the stuff into the bin and you're then able to access what they've dumped? Yes. The police effectively collect the drugs from the amnesty bins and then they're brought to us by various police forces. Then we analyse them chemically and then put them in our database. How do you analyse a a tablet you find in an amnesty bin? The, The sort of routine methods are essentially infrared spectroscopy for powders because it's quick and cheap. And then we follow that up with GCMS, gas chromatography, mass spectrometry. The gas chromatography separates the drugs into its various components and the mass spectrometry effectively produces a fingerprint which identifies them. How do
0: you know this is a drug which actually will produce an effect in a user. In other words, it is a
8: substance that has the potential to be illegal. Well, usually they're sufficiently similar to an existing drug. I mean, some of them are literally minor modifications of existing drugs.
0: What does it take for legislation to get changed about a chemical, though? So you find a chemical which has come out of a club amnesty bin or customs sent to you and say, we're finding this on people. Does just the sheer fact that you find a new molecule immediately mean it gets regulated or...
8: Is there a process there? There's a process. The problem is that 2012, there were 73 new compounds notified to the European Monitoring Centre. Most of those compounds will be controlled on a European basis, but before that happens, they're risk assessed. So just the fact that a compound exists doesn't necessarily mean that it will be controlled. Where are all these new
0: molecules coming from? Are there people sitting in their garden sheds across the country cooking up this stuff?
8: Or is it more organised than that? It's much more organised than that. They're almost all manufactured in China and imported into this country in bulk and then distributed. But whether the Chinese actually sit down and innovate the compounds and supply them or whether somebody in Europe or America uh, commissions the synthesis, I think is, is unclear at the moment. What about the fact that, yes, you could
0: detect these things, you might find the one tablet in existence for that particular molecule, what about actually working out whether people are wholesale consuming an agent? How can we do that?
8: That's a big problem. Um, and we can lurk around the chat rooms and hear what people are talking about, but that's not terribly scientific, but it gives us an idea as to whether they work or not. But we also have a strategy where we analyse bulk urine samples and look for the presence of these things. Typically urine collections from public urinals and we take samples from those and we can analyse them as an anonymous pooled bulk sample and find out what's in them on a Saturday night in a particular district. I do remember reading a paper
0: maybe about 10 years ago or so where... Someone had gone and collected samples from the river Po in Europe and said there must be something like a million doses of cocaine washing down the river every day based on their findings. So you can just go and analyse river water to find out what people are using. Can you sort of go to that extreme with these other molecules?
8: We absolutely can. I mean, the, the pooled urine analysis has more sensitivity. You know, we're collecting undiluted urine from, I don't know, a couple of hundred people typically. When you get on to sewage treatment works, the number of drug users contributing to the pool has to be quite high before we can detect it. Nonetheless, we can easily detect MDMA from ecstasy tablets, cocaine, heroin, methadone, and a whole variety of, of, of other compounds as well. And indeed, we have a project called SUPROF, which is researching exactly these issues. We're looking for differences in drug use in different countries and in different populations. We're looking for the effectiveness of strategies to try and and defeat drug use and we're also looking for the occurrence of these new compounds as they become available. When I was
0: a medical student we were shown a video of the very famous case of the MPTP story. Someone was trying to make a heroin substitute and lots of people turned up with the symptoms of Parkinson's disease and that always stuck in my mind and I thought if I was ever offered a tablet in the club I would never take it because the person who made that um, drug did not know they put this other toxin in by accident. Are you quite worried by what you see cropping up in in the chemicals that you analyse?
8: Oh absolutely I mean the the circumstances you describe were before the internet, I mean goodness knows what would have happened if, if somebody had made that now, I mean at the time it was distributed to only about 15 or 16 people locally but now when the stuff is made it's distributed to hundreds of thousands of people potentially across the whole of Europe or even across the whole of the world so there is the potential for an absolute catastrophe and I think young people just don't realise the potential risks they're running. That They don't understand why the pharmaceutical industry spends hundreds of millions of dollars and five years risk-assessing stuff before it ever gets near a human volunteer. This stuff is completely untested, and probably the first person who takes it is somebody who buys it either off the internet or even from a high street shop.
1: Thanks to John Ramsey. Now we're joined in the studio by Colin Davidson from St George's University of London. John spoke about identifying the chemical composition or fingerprint of these new legal high substances that are found in club amnesty bins, for example. And your role, Colin, is um, more to find out what these drugs actually do in the brain. So how do you do that?
9: I work quite closely with John. He's just along the corridor and... um... I used to work on just methamphetamine and cocaine and then met John and he started giving me all these completely new compounds. I test them out on pieces of rat brain. So um, we want to see whether they have stimulant effects, whether it looks like cocaine, whether it looks like amphetamine.
1: When you say that you're looking at a rat brain, how exactly are you doing that?
9: Without going into too many details, we kill a rat as quickly and as humanely as possible and we take uh, what's called brain slices. So they're 0.4 millimetres thick and I try and incorporate parts of the brain that I'm interested in. In this case, it's usually a part called the nucleus accumbens, which is the main brain reward pathway where the I mean, your listeners have probably heard of dopamine as a, a neurotransmitter. That's the neurotransmitter most involved in addiction and any rewarding activity like eating or sex. So um, I've got my little brain slice that I can keep alive in an artificial cerebrospinal fluid. Uh, It gets oxygen, it gets glucose, it can stay alive for up to 12 hours or more. And I give it a small electrical stimulation to mimic an action potential, which is what happens in the brain. Um, the, The small electrical activities cause release of transmitters. So I mimic that in this little piece of brain and measure transmitter release. And then obviously I'll take a few measurements, add the drug, whatever drug I'm looking at, and see if it increases or sometimes decreases um, the amount of transmitter I'm getting out. And that's a very good indication of uh, whether it's got addictive liability.
1: So what kind of thing would you see if you added, for example, um, illegal drugs like cocaine or amphetamine?
9: Well, cocaine would increase the amount of transmitter that comes out by about fourfold. So that the actual amount that comes out is higher and it hangs around for a lot longer. The, one of the first legal highs I tested was something called Ivory Wave that I got from John Ramsey. I actually found that to have a larger effect than cocaine. wasn't really expecting that. Cocaine such a, a a great compound at doing this. Amphetamine and amphetamine-like drugs, and um, I don't we haven't mentioned methadrome yet, which is the, the most famous legal high. It seems to be a bit like amphetamine and ecstasy, but they can cause transmitter release without action potentials which uh, potentially makes them more dangerous, I think, because it's been shown that amphetamine and methamphetamine, these types of compounds, actually cause neurotoxicity in animals. There's a lot of animal studies on that, and I, I did some of those in, when I worked in America. But also it's been shown quite recently that, that um, human uh, methamphetamine amphetamine addicts do have um, problems with their brains, There's brain lesions and, and very long-term problems after using them.
1: So it's causing cell death, these nerve cells, yep. to actually die.
9: Especially in the dopamine system, and you know, a long time ago it was hypothesised that, that this cell death might lead to early-onset Parkinson's, to go back to what Chris was talking about earlier. And recent research has suggested that that is true, that the people who were taking amphetamines or methamphetamine you know, 10 or 20 years ago are getting early-onset Parkinson's more often than you might expect.
1: And what about drugs like, for example, Benzofury has, I believe, been on the scene for quite some time now and it seems to be very popular and it's legal at the moment.
9: Yeah, I was at a conference yesterday in Bath, actually. It was one that John Ramsey was organising, the SUPROF, the Sewage Profiling Conference, and someone gave a talk there and mentioned that Benzofury is actually one of the most popular drugs at the moment. Um, It's been actually associated with two or three deaths um, quite recently. Um, but it, it seems to have both stimulant properties, so like like cocaine or amphetamine, but also has uh, LSD, you know, trippy-like properties. So you get a double effect from it. And my colleague um, James Moffat has shown it's it's very potent uh, vasoconstrictor. So it's going to give you hypertension and uh, potentially cause other cardiovascular problems.
0: You mentioned that that agent has this hallucinogenic property, but obviously you can't tell that from a slice in a dish. Well, we know
9: that LSD works um, on the 5-HT2A receptor, so a little bit of protein in the cell membranes. But I mean, it's obviously got a normal physiological function, but this is the small protein that LSD, and you know, these hallucin- hallucinogenic drugs, actually attach to very strongly and stimulate and cause um, things to happen inside the cell. So we've, sh- we've shown, and I've got a, f- a colleague at uh, Roehampton University, Jolanta Packer juffrey who's shown that... Um, Benzofury binds quite strongly to the 5-HT2 receptors. Um, I'd also say that um, you can also get hallucinogenic effects from these psychostimulants. And back in the 60s, a lot of people who took confetti were misdiagnosed as being schizophrenic. So if you get massive releases of uh, dopamine, it can cause you to have hallucinations and act like a schizophrenic. So these drugs, like the one I mentioned earlier, is which is very potent has actually caused these sort of effects in, in abusers uh, and they've done some crazy things recently.
0: What about working out um, whether or not these drugs are toxic? Because by measuring the, the nerve transmitters coming out, that tells you something about what they're doing to the brain. But what about, going back to your earlier point about the fact that they will do damage potentially, how can you tell that from your Slice experiments, can
9: you? Yeah, I've got a a method to measure mitochondrial activity. So one of the ideas is that some of these drugs might mess up your mitochondria. And for your listeners, mitochondria are the the small things inside your cells that produce energy, ATP. So if you run out of energy, the cell dies. And that's been shown um, for methamphetamine. And amphetamine, it it can cause uh, damage to neurons probably by disrupting mitochondria. So I've been looking um, at some some of these new legal highs using this mitochondrial stain in, in brain slices. But the ideal thing to do would be to try some long-term studies where you might dose an animal with one of these drugs for a few weeks, then see what effect it's had. That's the best way to do it.
1: So Colin, once you have this data about how these these compounds might affect the brain in terms of causing cell death, addiction, and also have psychoactive properties, then what do you do with this data? Who do you tell and, and then what happens? What's the next step?
9: Well, typically we try and publish it in a good journal. Um, but that, that's quite a long process. So you know, we, all, we always try and disseminate the data to the, the appropriate people. And I have given some talks to... Um, the ACMD, the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs, um, who would inform the government whether they thought something was dangerous or not. Um, I give talks to various scientific meetings and and so on, and get the the data out there to the people that need to know. So I guess in general
0: you work out how these things work, and that informs the reports that John's able to do as well, because he can say, we know what the molecule is, and Colin has told us, vaguely what it's doing to the brain, and then hopefully also get a publication out of it. Thank you very much, Colin Davison. Now, researchers might struggle to keep up with new legal high compounds being developed, but scientists face a different problem when they try to research illegal compounds. Because David Nutt, Professor of Neuropsychopharmacology at Imperial College London, and he's also President of the British Neuroscience Association, had hoped he could investigate the potential of using psilocybin, which is the active psychedelic ingredient in magic mushrooms, to treat depression but he and his team then ran into a mountain of red tape when they tried to set up a trial. Kate Lamble spoke to him about these obstacles.
10: We've discovered a serious obstacle to doing this research clinically, which is that there are two complex sets of regulations that really make life very difficult when you want to do studies in patients. And those are the fact that psilocybin, like many interesting drugs, are controlled under... The Misuse of drugs act but they're putting a particular schedule called schedule one which means that they're especially difficult to study because they have specially complex controls and those controls are arbitrary they don't relate to the harm of the drug so it's it's kind of paradoxical i can study heroin easily because my hospital is allowed to hold heroin but it's not allowed to hold cannabis or psilocybin which is absurd because heroin is obviously much much more dangerous So the rules are arbitrary. They're old-fashioned. They were stuck in the 1970s, and we haven't moved on. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this recent set of legislation called the European Clinical Trials Network, which has really screwed up human psychopharmacology in Europe. And that essentially sets a whole series of extra barriers to doing clinical research. Let me give you an example. I can prescribe a drug for blood pressure. Beta-blocker has been around for 50 years. If I want to research with it, I have to go through a bureaucratic process, which can take up to a year to get all the permissions. They make it virtually impossible to do trials unless you've got a company behind you with hundreds of thousands of pounds, because it just costs that much to go through these regulations. So that's what we're up against, these two great obstacles of the law and the clinical trial regulations.
11: You mentioned it's a Schedule 1 drug, which I think means it's got a high potential for abuse and there's no recognised medical use. How does a drug get classified in that way that seems to restrict it from research?
10: Well, it gets incorrectly classified. It's kind of painful to have to explain why this happens. But let me take you through it. In 1960 and 1970, the United Nations held a worldwide convention to do something about it. Illegal drugs on an international scale. They were about doing, looking at drug harms. And they decided that they would create a schedule for drugs which were thought to be harmful and which had no medicinal use. And the British government went along with it. And this Schedule One was set up. And then they looked at the drugs. They came across psilocybin and they said, oh, well, that has no medicinal use, therefore it must be Schedule One. The evidence of harm was very limited, but they just thought that all psychedelics were harmful, so they put them all in Schedule 1. They then put cannabis in Schedule 1, even though cannabis was a medicine. It was a medicine until they put it in Schedule 1, then it stopped being a medicine. So there was an arbitrariness to it, a perverseness to it. And then in 2005, mushrooms themselves, which were legal in 2005, they were put into Schedule 1, Class A. And was an example of we see all the time, where, is, where politicians will goad each other to be harder on drugs. And, of course, everyone thinks oh, being hard on drugs is a good thing. By and large, being hard on drugs is not a good thing for research because it completely stifles research.
11: Some people would say that putting it under Schedule 1 and restricting it is is because we're worried about protecting patients and these drugs being addictive in in some way. Is there any worry with mushrooms or psilocybin that if it's used for depressive patients, it might have an addictive quality?
10: You see, that's one of the uh, amazing things about psychedelics. They're not addictive. Before LSD was banned in 1964, there were, I think there were six trials of LSD to treat alcoholism. And there's been a recent meta-analysis of that work, and it shows it's as effective as anything else we've ever had. It's anti-addictive. A lot of people go overseas, they go to Vietnam and Thailand to have Ibogaine treatment for their addiction. Yeah, there's a, a whole body of literature about the mind-changing effects of psychedelics can be useful for addiction, as they may well be useful for depression as, and for dysthymia and all the other things that people get benefits from with them.
11: We're now seeing a lot more research into how Class A drugs, as we see them quite illegal drugs, like ecstasy being used for PTSD and things like that, and these drugs having medical implications. Do you think that that legislation is holding us back, or do you think that there is a certain amount of caution that we should be using you know, ecstasy is quite a,
10: a... I can say, I mean, most of the drugs in Schedule 1 are nothing like as harmful as the drugs in Schedule 2. It's an arbitrary distinction. They're there not because of their harms. They're there simply because someone said that they don't have medicinal use. And it becomes a circular argument. If it's impossible to study them as it is, it's almost impossible. Only very cussed people like me can be bothered to pursue the, you know, I mean, the years and years of hassle trying to get licenses. There is no question that if the the scheduling was more rational, there'd be a lot more research, and that would be good for neuroscience, and that would be good for patients. The worst example is not psilocybin, it's cannabis. I mean, cannabis was a medicine. It should never have been put in Schedule One. And exploring that has been terribly slowed over the last 40 years because of it. And that probably means that lots of people have suffered unnecessarily because, you know, the use for spasticity, the use for pain. And and also there's a huge interest in cannabis-type drugs for cancer treatments. And all this has been really impeded by the scheduling. And, of course, it hasn't actually stopped young people using it. I mean, when the cannabis was put into Schedule 1 in 1971, half a million people in this country had ever used cannabis. You know, 40 years on, 10 million people have used it, probably more, probably more like 20 million now. So it hasn't stopped the use. All it's done is stopped scientists using it.
11: As we're discovering more medical consequences from these drugs which we have previously been restricted from using, do you see a point at which scientists will campaign or win a change in regulation for research purposes?
10: Well, I am pursuing a campaign now to do that. and I want scientists to sign up. I've written with a couple of colleagues, quite a powerful piece coming out in Nature Reviews Neuroscience uh, in June that argues the folly of what we've done for the last 50 years and strongly challenges the government to change. So I want scientists behind me because I think when they see the missed opportunities, they'll realise that neuroscience hasn't expanded. It particularly feels like consciousness and pain research There are enormous insights to be made from drugs like psilocybin and cannabis.
11: Let's say that you finally get the trials underway. What's your foresight of when we could find out whether this can be turned into an effective treatment?
10: The current plan is this. Get the trial started as soon as possible. If there is significant benefit, then obviously we want to find a way of making it available to psychiatrists. And this is why the law must change. Because I can tell you that under the current law, psychiatrists would need to have a license to use the drug. The license costs £6,000 and takes a year to get, so they're not going to use it. Hospitals need to have a license to hold the drug. There's only four hospitals in the country with that license. So we must change the law to anticipate benefits of these drugs so that patients can then have access to them.
1: Thanks to Professor David Nutt. So, do you think the laws governing the research of Schedule 1 drugs should be relaxed? You can let us know your thoughts by emailing studio at thenakedscientists.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or you can find
0: us on Facebook. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Hannah Critchlow. And now closing the show, it's time for Question of the Week.
1: This week, we gleefully go in search of solving a sleepy riddle of a question. Stuart sent this in.
10: Hello. I'm wondering about the fact that I and two of my sons are consistently able to wake up quickly in a happy demeanour, whereas my wife and my other son have trouble waking up, no matter how much sleep they've had, and they have a somewhat less cheerful disposition. Could this be genetically based? Love the show, by the way.
1: So, is there a relationship between being an early riser and being chipper? We turn to the sleep clock expert, Dr Mick Hastings, from the Medical Research Council in Cambridge. He had some follow-up questions for Stuart, and it turns out that grumpy family members are still grumpy, even if they get to have lions and adjust their sleeping patterns during long holidays. So it doesn't seem to be the case that the bad mood was simply due to going against their midnight owl body clock cycles. So, given it's not natural body clock differences, what could be going on in the brains of these different groups? Michael explains.
12: Well, this is where it gets more biochemical, but I'd argue even more interesting. We do know that how well we feel our mood, of course, is determined by the chemicals in our brain, the neurotransmitters which are active. And we also know that the body clock controls the activity levels of those neurotransmitters. There's one in particular called serotonin, which is also called 5-HT, which is a sort of happy neurotransmitter. And quite a number of drugs which are used to control people's moods act through serotonin and the receptors it works upon in the brain. So one possibility could be there's just something different in the way in which the body clock controls serotonin patterns in the grumpy and happy people within this family. Something else we could look at where we know the body clock has a direct effect on mood is through a hormone called cortisol. Now cortisol is very important because it energizes the body, sends sugars into the bloodstream, increases heart rate, muscle tone and what have you. So it's the hormone that's secreted under the control of the body clock just before we wake up, which is great. You jump out of bed, you're ready to go. Perhaps there's something different in the cortisol patterns. We know they do vary enormously between people because... An important feature of cortisol is that not only does it energize the body, it does have a suppressive effect on mood. Now, of course, I'm not a clinician. I'm a basic biologist. But an interesting experiment would be to take some saliva samples from individuals, measure their cortisol levels, and just see if there's a correlation, a relationship between how grumpy people are in the morning and their morning levels of cortisol.
1: So possibly changes in the serotonin or cortisol levels in the brain could be affecting these morning moods. In this case, is there anything that Stuart's wife and grumpy son can do to cheer themselves up
12: in the morning? I think it's important to think about what might make them happy. Perhaps they could give themselves some little treats to wake up to, You know, hot cup of drinking chocolate or the sunlight shining on the bedroom wall.
1: And perhaps the bouncing bright Stuart can help deliver these nice little treats to his grumpy family members. Well, moving on, we turn to tackle next week's question. Neil and Babette MacDonald wrote in with this.
6: Historians and archaeologists talk about ancient artefacts or structures that are so many thousands of years old. How do they date these objects? Is it just from carbon dating? And did these ancient civilizations have some sort of time and date recording system in place then as well?
1: So, how best to date ancient artefacts? You can let us know your thoughts by posting on our Naked Scientists Facebook page. You can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can email studio at com or you can join in the live debate on our forum, which is at nakedscientists.com slash forum.
0: Hannah Critchlow, that's it for this week. Thank you to our guests John Love and Colin Davidson and uh, John Ramsey who joined us earlier in the programme. Thank you also to Hannah for joining me. The production this week was by Kate Lamble and next week we'll be touching up on our knowledge of the science of conservation. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust and the EPSRC. My name's Chris Smith and thank you for listening. Goodbye.